Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up, newly elected South Fulton Mayor Khalid Kamau talks about his vision for the city. Also, a year later, the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. We'll talk about who who are the Georgians involved in the federal legal investigation into the insurrection. And we consider the current state of our democracy. Our guests will include Chris Joyner from the AJC and Morehouse Professor Ilya Davis. All that's coming up. But first this, President Joe Biden marked the first anniversary of the insurrection in remarks from the U.S. Capitol earlier today. Now, the close 2020 presidential contest in Georgia fueled false claims of election fraud, which sparked the events of January 6th. Biden stressed the importance of a fair elections process. As we stand here today, one year since January 6, 2021, the lies that drove the anger and madness we saw in this place, they have not abated. So we have to be firm, resolute, and unyielding in our defense of the right to vote and to have that vote counted. Meanwhile, Georgia U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock is leading the charge to expand ballot protections by trying to revive voting rights legislation that stalled in Congress. And multiple outlets are reporting President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris will visit Georgia next Tuesday to push for those type of bills. In other news, the three men convicted of murdering Ahmaud Arbery could learn tomorrow whether or not they'll receive life sentences. A sentence hearing is, is scheduled for father and son, Greg and Travis McMichael, and their neighbor, William Roddy Bryant, that will be held tomorrow morning in Brunswick, Georgia. Their convictions both carry a minimum penalty of life in prison. A judge will decide whether that comes with or without the possibility of parole. And a programming note, on tomorrow's program, we'll have analysis regarding the proceedings. And finally, funeral services for former Georgia U.S. Senator Johnny Isaacson are being held at this hour in Atlanta. Georgia House Speaker David Roston called Isaacson one of the most decent people he's ever known in politics. In the era that we live in, with all the friction and the toxicity in the political environment, Johnny still believed and taught us that public service could be honorable. Isaacson died in December. He was 76 years old. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. The city of South Fulton is pretty new, still pretty new. In 2016, those voters who were eligible in the county approved for the area to become a city. In May, in May of 2017, the city of South Fulton was incorporated, thus becoming the fifth most populated city in Georgia. And recently, in a runoff election, voters elected Khalid Kamau as mayor, becoming the second person to ever hold the position. And he joins me now to talk more about his leadership style and his approach and his vision for the first 100 days in office. Mayor Kamahu, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you first so much for being on this show. I am an avid NPR listener. So this is this may be the highlight thus far of my uh, term as mayor. I don't know. <laughs> I hope you have some bigger achievements, but we appreciate that. Let's begin here because I know it, it, listen, it hasn't been long, but how are you assembling your administration? How are you, how are you assessing departments and areas of of where you want to make some changes? I imagine this is a, this is a tall task for you. Yes. um, Unfortunately, uh, thanks to uh, Georgia's new election laws, I had less than 30 days to do transition. We had to have a runoff election less than 30 days after the uh, initial election. So I was elected on November 30th and, you know, in less than 30 days, I, I, I've had time uh Fortunately for me, though, I am one of the founding members on council, so I've had four and a half years to think about these things. Uh, the The actual transition has been somewhat slow. Mm-hmm. I don't think that very many people in City Hall had thought that I would win. So there wasn't maybe a lot of time Um there wasn't a lot of preparation given to that. And then that's compounded by the fact that we are a brand new city. So it's not like we had this very well oiled centuries old institution of a machine and everybody knew how everything was going to happen. So it's been a little, it's been a little chaotic, but um, we're getting through it. Chaotic how? Give me, dissect that for us. Uh, I am, um, currently outside of my office which has no furniture and I have uh, someone working we we have a temp right now working as my executive assistant so you know it, it takes a while to hire people in government right which is why you really need did folks resign longer... did folks resign or were they fired and what happened no, with they, the furniture they 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 they, they resigned um the 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 way that the way the government works, right? Uh, a, uh, a lot of times, the executive assistants to one mayor, right, will follow that mayor, right? And sometimes, so, uh, yes. Those, yes. Yeah, so those folks, 
um, those folks resigned uh, or or moved on, and so we're starting with a with a new office. And it takes a while to hire people in government. Uh, you know, we don't just put out a thing and hire someone the next week. So uh, we are reviewing resumes. What happened to the we furniture? Did we're redesigning the office. okay? So the, uh, you chose to get rid of that furniture. It's not like the former mayor took it. Is that what you're saying? Oh no 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 yeah no he didn't he didn't he didn't leave okay. with the furniture but uh the you know the furniture is gone and uh the the yes we're just working on getting new furniture but the the idea I'm I'm really excited about even the design of the office itself so the the one of the goals of my administration is to create a more transparent and more inclusive mm-hmm. process and and to create a more modern government. And so that is going to start even with the look of the mayor's office sure. when you you're going to walk into the 21st century when you walk into this new office. And you're going to have going you're going to have digital whiteboards. What do you got to have? High, I mean, high tech stuff. Is that what you're saying? Um, it, it's going to be modern, but but I also I also want city the city of South Fulton right. We're a startup city, so I want us to be the Google of municipalities. I want us to have just a a more interactive, okay. more fun, more whimsical workplace. Whimsical? Never heard that. Uh, let me ask you this, Mayor, Mr. Mayor, because you were elected without support from a majority of the current city council members. Have you all been able to talk about all this and clear the air? Because as you just mentioned. You know, you all have a city to govern. Um, it's it's right. widely well, reported. It's publicized that there is tension. How is that working? Um, you know, it's we're working through it again. I think one of the one of the things that SB two hundred two did uh, the, the the revision of Georgia voter laws it robbed us of the time that we need as humans for transition. Right? Transition isn't just about decorating offices and changing out letterhead and picking staff. But, it's a time for people to reflect about what happened in the last election. So you're right. A majority of council people um, endorsed the previous mayor. But what is also true is that a majority of citizens endorsed me. So I won, unlike the city of Atlanta, where you know, you had pockets where people supported one candidate and pockets where people supported another candidate. I won 60 percent of the vote in every district across the city. What will and you so, do? Let, let me ask you this, Mr. Mayor, because I understand what you're saying. But what do you how do you see your role in bringing everybody together? We You've won. That's been clear. We all know that. What will you do as the, as a leader here to. So so the first the first thing that I will do is give people time to accept what happened, right? Obviously, there's some cognitive dissident in the fact that a majority of locally elected officials chose a different leader than the citizens. So the, the what, what that says to me is that some of those local electeds may not be in touch with what their citizens want. And, and and the people who elected me will also elect the state house reps and the city council people um, who will have upcoming elections. So the, the, I think the most important thing that I can do now as mayor is give 
everyone time to try and create, to slow things down and give everyone enough time to really think about what happened in this election. Well, and how, how much did time do you think so they many- need? Because you all, listen, you have a high COVID-19 infection rate mm-hmm. in your city. Mm-hmm. Crime, public safety, is everybody's being concerned about that as well. You you all have issues well, you have to get to. Well, that's actually not true. I got I to gotta, I gotta correct you there. Um, unlike the city of Atlanta, the city of South Fulton has had double-digit decreases in crime for the past two years. So we actually have been becoming safer ever since cityhood. So that isn't, it is, you know, everyone is concerned, concerned about crime, but we actually have been doing a really good job about that. And I think our residents have felt confident about that. Well, how much time do you need to give people? And you're talking about city um, council members, correct? I'm talking about everyone. I'm talking about city council members, state reps, other local leaders. But you I, are I the mayor. All... You're, you're, you are the mayor of South Fulton. So what state reps do yes, and all and I'm that? Going to give, I'm, I'm going to give people as much time as they need. You know, it's not for me to decide how much time. It's it's what's what what I think my goal is uh, uh, as the mayor is, is to give people as much time as they need to understand what happened. And, and no one can say how long that is. OK, well, while you're giving people all that time, Mr. Mayor, you still have some decisions to make, You, you, including getting furniture for your office. So what are the city's biggest challenges and opportunities that you feel you need to prioritize while you're giving people time to reflect and absorb the recent results? Uh, I think, you know, and I talked about this in my um, inaugural speech. One, I am putting together this transition commission, and the first thing that we're asking for is a forensic audit of the city's finances and all of our contracts. And then we're also going to take a look at our charter. There have been lots of different changes to the charter, so our charter doesn't always now agree with itself or with our code of ordinances or even with our policies internally as a city. And so while we are assessing the election and what the voters had to say, we're also going to make sure that we have all of the information that we need to move forward. I will just give you one quick example. We have a contract. We outsource our public works. Mm -hmm. Um, If we spend $12 million a year on public works, a million dollars a month, and not included in that contract is a single street sweeper to clean our streets. And not included is the cleaning of our major streets like Old National Highway, South Fulton Parkway, Camp Creek Parkway, which are state routes. Uh, they were being taken care of by the state prior to cityhood. The, the state continues to do some minimal maintenance out of a courtesy, and we should have included maintenance of those roads in our contract. So we know that that's one big area that we need to look at. The question is, how many other things have we missed? And that's what we'll be doing in the first 100 days. It's just really taking a look at everything before we charge ahead, making more decisions, just making sure that we understand the landscape of where we actually are. Are there any areas that you feel probably will need some leadership changes in? Are you still, you're going to be assessing that as well? Yeah, no, I think, I think we're assessing that as well. I did in my inaugural address um, ask uh for the letters of resignation for our city manager and our city attorney. That was not because I don't think that they are doing an excellent job, 
but right, we have never had a transition from mayor to mayor. This is our first mayoral transition. And what is one of the things that has come out is that a lot of our contracts, both with individuals and with um, entities, extended beyond the term of the current mayor. And I think that any mayor has the right to come in and, and set a, an administration that comports with their vision and the vision of the voters who sent them. And so we're all just sort of assessing, uh, do, do, now that people understand that I am going to be the mayor and I have this mandate from voters to enact this vision that I've been talking about, is this a vision that you believe in as individual department heads or as, you know, as a city manager or, city, or as a city attorney? Is this a vision that you believe in and can get behind? Well, did you uh, not? Everyone doesn't. But, but have you given are you giving staff members an opportunity to fully vet or understand what your vision is? The city attorney. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So. And so, yeah, and you have to understand that we actually have a city manager form of government. Sure. So the only two people that that I get to appoint are the city manager and the city attorney, unlike the city of Atlanta, where, sure. you know, the mayor hires the police chief and all of these other folks, um, the public works director and all these things. I, I, I don't have that power in South Fulton. So I think we're all taking a look again. This election was um, a surprise to a great many people inside City Hall. And we're going to take the next hundred days just uh, seeing me articulating the vision and them thinking, thinking through whether or not uh, th they can work in this new infrastructure. This vision that you see for the city of South Fulton, you have referenced community models like Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma and, and Rosewood in Florida. Can you take that a little bit further for our listeners? What do you mean by that? Yes. So um, one of the things that I ran on the city of South Fulton is for those of you all who do not know, um, we are, as, as uh, my partner says, we are south and west of the airport. If you drive on 285, we are everything outside of 285 from Cascade to Old National. We are 100 square miles. So we are about the same size as Atlanta. I call us Atlanta's twin city, mm -hmm. but with a population that is 92% African-American, we are the blackest city in America. Of all cities over 100,000 people, Atlanta has actually dipped below 50%, right? Well, and well, many of the people... When you say blackest, you're so referring black. to race? Yes. Okay, and what yes. significance... Okay, but how does that figure into your vision? And so... And so the way that it figures into the vision, we, we know that we, have, we, we are intentionally black in our demographics. We now need to be black with intention in our policymaking. The city of South Fulton struggles with the same challenges that majority black cities across America uh, face. So okay. we, we face the same challenges as the South side of Chicago, the South side of DC, the South side of LA, sure. you name it. Sure. They're undervalued homes. Um, underperforming and under-resourced schools and entrepreneurs uh, that are also under-resourced and have a, a lack of access to capital. So increasing, um, increasing the performance of our young people so that they are prepared for the jobs of the 21st century, increasing access to capital for our local entrepreneurs who have been systemically disenfranchised by things like redlining okay. um, and increasing uh, increasing the standards for which 
homes are built. Then how do you plan um, to do area. that? How do you plan to change then those systemic disparities and inequities you just talked about? Well, you know, we take we've taken the 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 first steps. Be, uh, before I was even mayor, I I introduced legislation, a resolution that declared racism and income inequality a public health crisis. So the first step to solving any problem, right, is acknowledging that it exists. So we became one of the first cities in Georgia, uh, and we became the first city in Georgia, actually, to acknowledge that racism, uh, systemic racism is a crisis and it has affected the quality of lives of our residents. And we, and in that resolution, we have asked our department heads to look as they are making policies mm -hmm to to ensure or to try and ensure that the policies that they are making reduce income inequality and reduce structural barriers of racism. So one of the so one of the things that we're going to be doing um, in the coming months, we're going to spend February and March really focusing on our planning and zoning and subdivision regulations, making sure that when developers come to South Fulton mm -hmm. to build homes, that they are building homes and communities uh, with the same level of care and excellence that they are doing in places like Alpharetta or Duluth or Sewanee. All right. You have, you mentioned your first 100 days. We'll need to bring you back. Unfortunately, we are short on time here, but I want to make sure we bring you back to give you some more time to talk about your vision for the city of South Fulton. Khalid Kamau, newly elected mayor for the city of South Fulton. I appreciate you taking the time. Make sure you come back, okay? Thank you so much. South Fulton forever. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. What will history say about January 6th, 2021? But this time, we brought this hell upon ourselves. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California. To the New York Island. Now it is up to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy. And after this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down anyone you want, but I think right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. That ribbon of highway I saw above. That endless skyway. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong.
Let me be very clear. The scenes of chaos at the Capitol do not reflect a true America, do not represent who we are. What we're seeing are a small number of extremists dedicated to lawlessness. This is not dissent. It's disorder. It's chaos. Borders on sedition. And it must end now. I call on this mob to pull back and allow the work of democracy to go forward. You've heard me say before in different contexts, the words of a president matter, no matter how good or bad that president is. At the best. This land was made for you and me. And so here we are, a year later, to reflect, assess, and dissect how and why the attack on our nation's capital unfolded. Now, earlier today in remarks on the nation's capital, President Joe Biden directly blamed his predecessor, Donald Trump's refusal to accept a presidential election defeat as a catalyst for this attack. He's done so because he values power over principle. Because he sees his own interest as more important than his country's interest, than America's interest. And because his bruised ego matters more to him than our democracy or our Constitution. He can't accept he lost, even though that's what 93 United States senators, his own attorney general, his own vice president, governors and state officials in every battleground state have all said he lost. The exact number of those attacked in the U.S. Capitol a year ago, we may not know, but we do know, according to the U.S. Department of Justice, some 725 people have been charged with crimes related to the riot. And as political reports, more than 150 have pleaded guilty for some of those crimes. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland, head of the DOJ, said this week his agency has no higher priority than the investigation of the insurrection. The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6 perpetrators at any level accountable under law, whether they were present that day or were otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy. We will follow the facts wherever they lead. Here in Georgia, more than a dozen face charges, including from disorderly conduct to assaulting an officer with a deadly weapon. And some of them face long prison sentences if convicted. Chris Joyner is an investigative reporter with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He's been tracking the legal cases against some of these Georgians accused in the DOJ's probe of the Capitol riot. Chris, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Rose. Let's talk about, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, When we talk about some of these folks who are facing maybe minor charges and the sentences that that individual may face. Um, for our listeners, give us an example of, of one of these individuals. Uh, one of these individuals, um, let's see, by name, trying to think of somebody who would make a good example, probably somebody like, um, uh, see Jonathan Davis Mm -hmm. Lawrence he's a Duluth resident he's 38 years old he was among the hundreds people who came into the Capitol on uh uh, January 6 a year ago uh and took pictures of himself inside the Capitol posted onto Facebook and other social media uh but did not assault police officers and Mm -hmm. is not accused of having caused damages so he is charged with a variety of misdemeanors uh involved with 
coming into a restricted space or trespassing or illegal picketing. Mm -hmm. Chris, let me ask you, through your probe and your investigation, your reporting, do you know if any Georgians here have been accused or aligned with any of the extremist groups, for example, the Proud Boys or the Three Percenters, to your knowledge? Uh, yes. Uh, Brian Ulrich, uh, a Guyton resident, he's 43 years old down in South, uh, South Georgia, he is accused of having conspired with the Oath Keepers in chats uh, online prior to January 6th, you know, claimed that he would be the one, uh, this is according to the, uh, the court records, that he claimed he would be the one running around with an AK-47 uh, at the Capitol, you know, when he was trying to identify himself to the alleged other conspirators. So he's one, and he is, uh, he's actually in a large conspiracy uh uh, group of defendants that are being tried as co-defendants, mostly uh, for being associated with the Oath Keepers. Mm. Chris, what can you tell us about any Georgians who have already uh, taken a guilty plea? Uh, we've had a few. Um, we had um, a former Marine named Kevin Douglas Creek. Uh, he's from Johns Creek. Uh, he uh, took a he he pled guilty in a in a. Uh, plea bargain. Uh, he's pled to a felony for assaulting a police officer. He's accused of having pushed and kicked at police officers outside the Capitol. Um, he is uh, awaiting sentencing. Uh, sentencing is scheduled for March, although he's got a new attorney who's trying to push that to uh, August or beyond. Uh, but uh, at some point, he is going to be sentenced to somewhere between 24 and 30 months in prison, which is a pretty long sentence. Yeah. For these uh, for these people, Chris, in your reporting and in your investigation and in all of this, uh, it, it, what has stood out to you about some of the Georgians that were involved? Well, at the Atlanta Journal Constitution, for years I have studied uh, and reported on people on the fringes of politics, on the extreme right, the mm -hmm. extreme left. By and large, these people who were arrested were not people I would have considered to be on that extreme. These are people who are were certainly ardent supporters of uh, President Trump, but they did not have a history of this sort of militant activism, by and large. Uh, although some did, uh, by and large, most did not. They did not have uh, prior political activism experience. They didn't, um, um, uh, they didn't have criminal charges before they were arrested on these counts, mm -hmm. uh, by and large. So these are people who uh, were activated by the political atmosphere at the time which to go is, to Washington. Well, which was mm -hmm. the which was refusal, the, the refu yeah, refusing yeah. to accept, especially here in Georgia, Biden's win over Trump. Exactly. Exactly. And they, they had uh, really bought the line that the election was stolen. Uh, we've heard them in courtrooms uh, say that they were misled, that they were brainwashed by and large. You know, a lot of them have said that they they realize now how mistaken and foolish they were. Uh, of course, now they're saying this now that they've been arrested and charged and they're they're facing mm -hmm. uh, really some in some cases, some significant prison time. And but uh, but it is interesting to hear them say in an open court, I was foolish. I was I, I was misled. This is not something I believe anymore. Hmm. 
I want to bring in now, and Chris, hang with us if you can for a moment, because I want to bring in now, he's been a contributor. We talked to him last year, a year ago. This is from Morehouse College. He's a director of freshman and seniors academic success and a professor of philosophy, Ilya Davis. Professor Davis, thanks for taking the time. Welcome into the conversation. Thank you very much. I wanted to bring you in early because I wanted you to comment on what Chris just talked about in terms of some of these folks saying, hey, we were fooled, we were brainwashed, uh, didn't quite think it was going to happen like this or didn't think these events were going to unfold. I'm interested, in, sir, in your response to that. Well, on the surface, one might say prima facie, that would be very naive to think that you could go into a federal facility without permission. And so it's very difficult, and I'm not an attorney, but I, I believe it, it's still very difficult to prove intent. So what we do is try to speculate. I mean, it's counterfactual now to go back and say what they may have been thinking. We don't know. So speculation leads me to say they knew what they were going to do. They didn't know the repercussions, maybe. Maybe you didn't think they were going to be as profound. And that, that services the very notion of um, an immature thinker, irresponsible thinker. I mean, if I drive beyond the speed limit, even though the rest of the traffic is driving beyond the speed limit, I shouldn't be surprised if I get a ticket and I can't say everyone else was doing it. And so they should have been a little more responsible and said, this isn't the thing I should be doing legally, even if you believed in it. And I think you must um, somehow own up to the responsibility of engaging in that type of activity, even if you did not uh, perform any violent, direct violent act, because even one could even claim entering under those circumstances itself is a violent act. Mm-hmm. Chris, I want to come back to you. And then Professor Davis, you can, you can answer this question too, because listen, at the core of this is the Trump effect. And we also know, Christian, you cover in politics, we know that many Republicans to this day still refuse to acknowledge the role that Trump and his inner circle played or might have played in inciting this attack. This is politics. As I heard someone earlier on NPR say, this is still just politics. And this is an election year, obviously, 2022. Chris, you've covered politics for a long time. Have you ever seen anything like this, an individual like Trump that has such a huge influence, even a year after being defeated in his bid to be reelected? And Certainly, there have been political figures that hold influence uh, even beyond their time in office. Uh, and and we've seen it here historically in Georgia. Uh, but to, to say that there's someone like Donald Trump and the type of influence that he wields over an entire party, I don't know that there's anything that we could compare it to uh, that would be a sort of an apt comparison because it's not it's not based on. Uh, a real firm political ideology as Mm -hmm. much as it's based on a personality. And I think that's a real difference uh, when it comes to the sort of difficulties that some Republicans have uh, in sort of explaining and uh, to their constituents, their feelings about Donald Trump. Professor Davis. And I was going to allude and, and Mr. Joyner knows this much better than I do, but even up until 1972, before primaries became the fundamental way of how we functioned politically, Uh, you had individuals who were similar ideologically, Henry Ford, Joe McCarthy, and others who would have performed similar activities, I believe, that Trump did. And I think we lost a certain level of oversight in vetting individuals. So a certain authoritarian model is now offered to a general public in ways that I think it makes for the occasion for these things to happen. Cold of personality is not new. 
You know, we can mm-hmm. go through history from Charlemagne all the way through, you know, my, I mean, we, we have so many examples. And so the idea is how do you prevent this? Well, it sounds basic, but you have to prevent individuals who assert or purport authoritarian ideals prior to them even being eligible. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that has to do with how we educate, how we discuss politics and engagement. And I think that was a major failure. We don't have these conversations in our schools and in public discourse. Interesting, because this leads me to uh, the next segment I want to talk about, because, Chris, I'll start with you. There's a new NPR uh, poll that finds 64 percent of Americans believe U.S. democracy is, quote, in crisis and at risk of failing. Does that surprise you? 64 percent? No, it doesn't surprise me. I think that, uh, I mean, we're reeling from a a really disruptive period in politics. We have a pandemic that overlays it. Uh, I think that the the trust in the institutions of government is at a very low point right now. And so 64% would be drawing from people from either side of the the aisle in terms of, you know, the conservatives and and liberals alike uh, probably feel that to for different reasons, perhaps, but probably feel that democracy is very much at risk of failing or has indeed failed. Hmm. Professor, what do you think? Well, the first problem is democracy being an ambiguous term. And I think what people have done is they ascribe whatever meaning they want to it. And then when their personal desires aren't satiated by the practice of certain institutions, democracy fails. And so I think it depends on with whom you're in conversation to ask the question, is it failing? I mean, I know a lot of black people who believe that it was um, stillborn in the United States of America. I mean, mm-hmm. from the first day, you claim democratic ideals with enslaved people. So that becomes a point of entry. But I think that the institutional view that is held by a, a thinker, Martha Sen, he represents the idea that voting becomes the primary way of understanding. And they must include another aspect, which is decision making based on public reasoning. And I think that's what's normally left out. And so what happened on January 6th is a product of a democratic ideal, right? It it becomes a product to the degree to which uh, people believe it is incorporated within a democratic notion. It's incorporated that these type of things could happen, right? Mm -hmm. That it could happen. That is disagreement, not the appropriate form of disagreement, but disagreement. Chris, here in Georgia and among our, our, our state lawmakers, and what are you hearing from either party about January 6th last year, do folks tend to want to move on? Is it something now that it it happened? You're going to have the investigations, convictions, whatever, and we should move on. Or we should really still keep addressing what happened and still continue to hold folks accountable. Do you, you get the sense that the politicians here in our state or is it mixed in terms of how we we view uh, January 6th from last year? Uh, well, I think that over the course of the year, um, there's been a recasting uh, among, you know, certain conservative Republicans of the, of January 6th, uh, you know, recasting the um, the people who were inside the Capitol as somehow something other than, you know, rioters, you know, casting them as, as patriots, um, discounting uh, what, you know, what in fact happened at the Capitol, the, the violence that occurred uh, inside the Capitol and on the steps, uh, the terrace. Uh, so, I mean, I think as we've gotten farther and farther away, there's been an attempt to sort of recast that. Um, obviously, on the uh, on the other side of the coin, uh, Democrats uh, find that there's a uh, 
you know, there's a lot of political capital to be had in, mm-hmm. you know, maintaining, uh, you know, the outrage over January 6th. So I think that, you know, if you look at just the pure politics of it, you can see sort of both those things at work. Do you think then, Chris, convictions of some of these insurrectionists through your lens, you think that gives hope to some folks who have who believe that right now our democracy is is in a fragile state? Do these convictions? Certainly the, yeah, certainly the Department of Justice hopes so. And they've taken a particular approach to all these defendants. You don't see them charged with sedition. You see them charged with assaulting a police officer. Mm-hmm. You see them charged charged with uh, conspiracy. These are these are common criminal counts because they want to show that that these defendants are being processed as criminals, not as ideologues. And I think that's a that's a real conscious choice. Professor Davis, what about you? These convictions, what weight do they carry in terms of strengthening people's hope that our democracy is not totally fractured and that it can rebound? And, and I guess, based on what you said I, earlier, maybe not. <laughs> no, I appreciate what Mr. Joyner said. And that was my issue, why they were not charging at least some with sedition. Because it seems like part of the problem right now is, I think the, the most profound punishment now is five years. I would have expected 20. 30 years. I mean, they don't use certain language purposefully, sedition, terrorist. And I understand it. It, 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 it seems to harken back to um, a civil war notion, right? That we must protect family members even after, you know, the differences have been somehow reconciled. And I, and I find that a little soft on the part of overseers here. I think that they should have gone as far as they could, even if it's not everyone, do someone. Someone has to be the exemplar for punishment here. Mm-hmm. And it seems at this point, again, five years seems a bit soft. Whether or not democracy is still a, a, the best resource, I think it is. The problem is disambiguating it. We don't allow for people to be clear about what do you mean when you say democratic? And what we need to show is there are certain virtues like care and respect and dignity that are left out of our public discourse about what we mean when we say democratic. So however way you fill it in personally, it should always include the higher virtues of human interaction. Chris, Uh, I just want to circle back around. I think what Professor Davis is saying about the approach uh, that uh, Department of Justice has taken in this, they have they have been criticized uh, on the left uh, for not pursuing these charges as uh, what a lot of people see them as, as Mm -hmm. as sedition, as treason. Um, And um, I think where the Department of Justice is really going to rely is on these larger conspiracy cases uh, these are likely to go to trial, and they're the cases that are likely to um, uh, yield the larger, longer uh, prison sentences. And I think in the in the end result, the department is going to point at those uh, those cases and say, "Look, these were the people; these were the people who were moving the mob, and they're the ones we went after with the with the toughest crimes." And and so I think. You know, time's going to time will tell is how that goes out. I think one of the things that we're concerned about, and I'm, uh, you know, this is just speculation on my part, but I think there's probably something to it, is that they did not want to take some of these oath keepers or proud boys and put them on trial for sedition and then not be able to prove that intent and not get mm-hmm. a conviction. And then that would have really, <laughs> you're right about that. I was going to say something, Chris. I'm going to behave myself. Uh, Professor Davis, I want to bring you back into conversation for a minute because. I'm curious, you've touched on this a little bit. You talk about, let's be clear about 
that whole definition of what democracy looks like. You joined us a year ago and we asked listeners to call in and we asked them about the current state of our nation's democracy and we asked them how they felt. And you remember there were a lot of people that were really just, they, it was clouded. They, yes. they felt like, you know, it was fractured. It was, it was in peril, as some would say. A year later, you think anything, if has anything occurred that might be able to refresh or give hope for some of those folks who called in last year and said, nah, you know, this we're, we're done for. This is the acts of January 6th have, have proven that this is where we are as a nation. We're just gonna have to deal with it. This and, is what some I, people said. Of course. And I firmly believe in maintaining the hope. The issue again is we must understand democracy does not mean the outcome satisfies your desires. And again, this is fundamental for those individuals who stormed the Bastille, if you will, the issue is they they were not clear. You can still invest in the possibilities and the hope of a democracy, even if it doesn't turn out in the way that you had aspired or hoped. And that's something we don't teach. And we have a tendency, majority rule is a problem, of course it is. But we have to be as clear as we can about how democracies work. You often hear the language of democracy, American democracy is an experiment. That's true. But at any given point, any juncture in the experiment, you must pause to evaluate it and recalibrate it in light of the errors, as well as the developments of that democracy. So this forces us to pause right now and ask the questions whether or not the, the mechanisms that we needed in place to provide clarity and development and a more, more progressive notion of democracy can be put in place. We don't do this. So we lose states people. And we just merely have politicians because a statesperson is going to try to perform, at least on the floor, notions of what it means to move forward in a democracy versus merely descriptively. Very interesting, Professor, because Ed, my producers were wondering what I was doing earlier. I went back. I reread George Washington's final farewell address. And, and I said, I said, uh, Mr. Washington was not a fan of commas, but I got through it. But he talks about this. He talked. George Washington talks about this. He talks about this very moment in this in his farewell address. And if y'all don't believe me, go ahead and read it. Uh, the voice you hear besides me is Professor Ilya Davis from Morehouse College. He's a director of freshman seniors academic success, professor of philosophy. I'm also joined by AJC investigative reporter Chris Joyner. Well, then let's get into how this moment will be forever stated or defined. Chris, I'll ask you, how should this be taught in our nation's classrooms? Moving forward, I think that uh, it should be taught as what it was, which was an attempt by a mob to overturn uh, a the will of the people. It was it was an attempt to subvert democracy, and I think that's the way it will be remembered. You know how how large it will loom uh, in American history depends sort of on what happens in the coming few years. I mean, do our institutions? Uh, strengthen themselves? Do we regain, do they regain the trust of uh, people who are uh, both conservative and liberal uh, and those of us in the middle? Uh, you know, if, if those things happen, it, you know, we'll, we'll look at it as a really unsightly period in American history, but not something, you know, uh, existential uh, in, in terms of, you know, whether or not our democracy goes forward. And it also depends on what what words are used as well. Professor Davis, how should this be talked about in classrooms decades from now? I would hope to begin by saying something of the form, we must resist promoting moral failures when doing so. 
Grant's intellectual space to divisive propaganda. I mean, we want to make sure that people understand difference does not mean disorder. And part of what is going to be taught the same way you would teach Jefferson Davis becoming president of the Confederacy. I mean, that wasn't an appropriate response. This isn't an appropriate response. What do you do when deference, when difference is fundamental here? And we got, we're going to have to do a better job in our educational structures. We don't offer this in civics. People's assumption is, again, agreement um, is not necessary. Disagreement has a tendency to perform the task we need, and that is to figure out what's best for us in our social arrangements. So I would teach this along with the conversation about civil war. I would teach it about enslavement. I would teach it about what transpired with the deaths of black people who were murdered by institutional structures. Um, the protests we've had in the past two, three years, all of these things come together because this response represents the tale of two senses of disorientation in the world because their level of disorientation led them to storm the Capitol. Many of the people who marched in the streets of, of the nation and the world two years ago didn't lead them to somehow imagine overthrowing the government. They wanted the government to listen to them, and they thought that the best course of action was to demonstrate peacefully. This was not peaceful, and this was an encroachment, as Mr. Joyner says, on the notion of democracy itself. You were saying, I get to do what I want. I want what I want when I want it. And if it's not that way, this is the result. Chris, join in. Just building off that, I think, you know, we could look at the civil rights movement as something we have a little bit of historical perspective on. And that was a protest movement that invested in the institutions of democracy rather than trying to overturn them. I and mean, they were asking for redress in the courts. They were asking to be treated as equal citizens and, and, and they were asking for the ballot. They weren't trying to overturn elections or topple governments. And I, and I think that I, I, you know, I, I think that it may, if it's a good comparison for people who are now trying to reframe January 6th to remember what was really at stake there. And Chris, I, I want to direct this to you because we as journalists, we as the media, credible news outlets like obviously the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and of course WABE, NPR. Yeah, y'all credible. Uh, yeah, thank you. But but listen, let's be really clear that the, the role of certain media outlets, news outlets, um, played a role in this as well, too. And for a lot of criticism that journalists receive, and some rightfully so, but also when you look at this situation with a certain news outlet, what does this this moment also mean for journalists, for media outlets, and how we cover, and also our relationships with politicians, their elected officials? Yes, I can call. I have off-the-record conversations with. Now, I've never, ever been involved in insurrection. Thank goodness. But what does this say about our industry and all of this? Oh, it's extremely challenging. I mean, uh, as, as anyone knows, it's a, it's a challenging time anyway for journalism, uh, you know, and has been for for the last two decades. Uh, but we're really confronted with some sort of novel concepts as to how we're supposed to cover this. I mean, most of us were were uh, instructed and trained uh, to covering a sort of both sideism way of writing the news. And these are not times when you can do that. If one side is saying the election was stolen mm -hmm. and there's no evidence of that, you, and it, you have to, you have to guard against disinformation that becomes, uh, you know, a, a real heavy lift for a traditional news organization that, that wants to 
provide a balanced view. And when you get folks questioning, well, why aren't you giving this side airtime or print time? And I always say, I'm not going to give airtime to someone who I know is lying and going to come on and say stuff. That's not true. I don't know how y'all do it over there at AJC, but as long as I'm behind <laughs> well, the, the mic, I'm not going to do that. Right. Uh, <laughs> I am the same. I am, but, what I, but what I do try to do is I try to hold everyone to the same sure. uh, responsibility to, to be factual, to provide evidence for what they're saying, uh, regardless of their ideology. And those that cannot, well, I point that out. And you get one time to do that on this program. If you can't provide the facts and back it up, you got to go. That's just... <laughs> That's that a, seems fair. That seems fair. Uh, real quickly, we've got about a minute. Um, your hope for another year, you know, next year will be the second year. We'll be talking about the second anniversary of this. Uh, Professor Davis, I'll give you about 30 seconds here. What do you hope we're talking about then? Inequality, wage inequality, social inequalities, poor education. These are fundamental. And I think they set at the base of many of our problems, our lack of understandings and ability to disagree. So if we can work on these fundamental social ills, I believe at least we'll be moving in the right direction. All right. From Morehouse College Director of Philosophy, Professor Philosophy, Ilya Davis, and also from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, investigative reporter, Chris Joyner. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rose. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Our other producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel, who was also our engineer today. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash closerlook. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.